I'm one of the elders. My name is Gary Giovanni, and I'm one of the volunteer elders, which means I'm not on the payroll. So, so, and I felt the call to eldership several years ago, and this is, I'm at, entering my fourth year now here at Riverbend as an elder. Been a member here since January of 2000, correct? And uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me and my family over the years. God called me to, to, to himself when I was age of 11. And it's been quite a journey, like many of you have had quite a journey in your lives as well. And it's such a privilege to be here tonight to share with you something that I believe most Christians, if they're honest, struggle with more than we would perhaps want to admit. And that's the struggle of forgiveness. To be truly, as a Christian, to be a forgiver. It's not as easy as you might think. People in general, and yes, Christians, struggle with this more than you might want to believe. And the Bible addresses this. The Bible's all about forgiveness and reconciliation in the book. The, the main theme of the Bible, I believe, is redemption. It's about the Redeemer. It's all about Jesus. But I wanted us to look specifically tonight at the one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's in the Old Testament. Joseph, I think a lot of you know what I'm, what I'm getting at here. He had, he's a very unusual individual. He was a type of Christ because a lot of Joseph's characteristics, he emulated Jesus in so many ways that he lived his life. But as we look at Joseph, you notice he came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, his father was Jacob, and he was, his mother was Rachel, and they were born... His brother was Benjamin. He had, he had several brothers, actually. He had 12 total. But his mother, Rachel, bore both he, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, we're dealing in a time when men had more than one wife. And the 12 men in that family carried the names of what would become eventually the 12, what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And, that, and the name of Israel was given to Jacob, which means let God prevail. Jacob received this name as God saw that Jacob was becoming a righteous man and that God was prevailing in his life. But now as the story goes, in Genesis chapter 37, this is where I'm going to start there tonight, in Genesis chapter 37, in verse 2, and it begins like this. It says, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age. He was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. There's where the other brothers came from. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. And this is the preliminary to what would take place as you begin to see how Joseph was treated by his father. You're going to begin to see how the reaction of the brothers was to him. Now Israel, here it goes. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. Now that tunic was quite special because it symbolized the fa his father's blessing to him. 
Now you can imagine what the older brothers thought. He was, I think, second to the last in line of the ages of the brothers. And his brothers saw that their brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers. So hatred was building toward Joseph by his brothers. Now I want you tonight, as I go through this, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's position. And I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourselves, how would I really react under the circumstances we're about to go into in Joseph's life? A lot of you know this story. But have you ever looked at it from the view of how you would probably react given the same circumstances in your life? To add what was already taken place, we see in verse 5, Joseph has a dream. And that was not unusual during this time. And when he told it, they even hated him more because he told his brothers what his dream was. And the, the dream ultimately involved Joseph one day, he was ruling over his brothers in his dream. Then in verse 9, the scripture mentions another dream where they would one day bow down to Joseph. So he's not only ruling over his brothers, but they're bowing down to him in another dream indicating that. Well, what do you think the reaction of the brothers was? They were furious when they heard what was coming out of Joseph's mouth. They, he had infuriated them even more than you might imagine. So they began to plot on how they could get rid of Joseph. Now, you're in Joseph's position. Think about how you're going to feel through all of this. And I want you to see how God is going to be working through all of this because God is really at the center of all of this. All of this is happening under the direction of the Holy Spirit in the life of Joseph. In chapter 37, verse 14, Israel sends Joseph to check on his brothers who were attending a flock of sheep. And then he was to return and he was to give his father a report on what Joseph had observed. In verse 17, we see Joseph finding his brothers in Dothan. There's actually a town in Alabama, Dothan, which was named after this particular scripture. Then in verse 18, it reads, When they saw him, that's the brothers, from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Boy, nice brothers. Imagine being in that situation. Well, let's see what happens. Well, one of them said... Reuben, let us not take his life. That's in verse 21. Then in verse 22, Reuben further says to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness. That was not unusual to have pits to collect water. They also used them for traps to catch wild animals sometimes. But he also said, Do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. He wanted to restore Joseph to the father. So it came about in verse 23, when Joseph reached his brothers, they really attacked him. They stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was, was empty without any water in it. And then guess what they did in verse 25? They sat down to have a meal. They were probably celebrating in some extent, but some of them were probably a little disturbed by it. You can imagine the conversations after what they had just done to their younger brother. 
Well, it just so happened, as they were sitting there eating, as the story goes, they noticed a caravan of Ishmaelites heading to Egypt. Now, this is like modern day when you're in, on the Interstate 95 and you see a truck convoy going by with all kinds of trucks carrying goods to be sold or to be delivered to wherever they have been sold on the interstate. Back then, they used camels and donkeys and very whatever animals they had to carry it. So it was not unusual to have a convoy of people heading, which they called caravans back then, heading to Egypt. And this is, this is like the modern-day truck going for so Judah then, So then Judah sees opportunity, and he comes up with an idea now. They want to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels. So they said, what's the point in killing him? Why don't we make some money off of this? So they sell him. So it kind of sounds familiar with Judas in the New Testament, getting paid 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus in. There's, some, there's a lot of parallels in this story and Jesus himself in the life of Jesus. Well, they had to make a cover-up because they had to tell their father something. And a lot, as, as a lot of things go, as you know in life, when people commit crimes and stuff, they try to cover them up. They come up with another story of some sort. And this was no, not, not unusual in this case. So the cover-up, they decided, let's kill a goat, soak Joseph's tunip in the blood, and then we'll take it to our father and we'll tell him Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And that was not unusual in this part of the country during that time in history. Now, as these details unfold, you can imagine what must be going through the mind of Jacob now, of Joseph now. What would be going through your mind now if this was you? If you were dealt with unfairly, especially to this extent, what would you think? How would you react? What might your thoughts be? Well, I think under normal circumstances, most human beings would probably admit anger, resentment, lots of fear, thoughts of potential punishment, and even getting even if you ever got the opportunity to do so. These are kind of normal human reactions to these kinds of situations. Well. Beginning in chapter 39, the story goes on, we be, read about Jacob, Joseph being taken down to Egypt. So he's taken to Egypt, and guess what happens there? He gets sold again. So he's not only been thrown in a pit, but he's now been sold twice as a slave to a man by the name of Potiphar. He's an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh. He's the captain of the bodyguard, and he bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Now Joseph is a slave under Potiphar. If it weren't for bad luck, he wouldn't have had any at all. You know. But God has other plans for Joseph. Verse 2 begins. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Then in verse 3, things got even better for Joseph. Potter noticed that everything Joseph did prospered. So Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his entire household of affairs. The Lord's blessing was upon everything Potiphar owned because God had blessed Joseph. Wow. Joseph must have had a lot of various skills to have advanced so quickly in that situation, in that setting. I suspect 
that Joseph was a fine-looking man. He was probably of great stature. He was probably a good communicator. And he probably knew how to get desired results through the willing cooperation of other people. And those are great characteristics for a leader. And so just when you think everything is going well for Joseph, he's finally got, arrived at, at something that will give him a good standard of living, make his life comfortable, and things would start going well for him, which they were. It came about, it says in verse 7 on chapter 39, came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. She was putting the move on Joseph. She was direct, and she gave him an invitation. Men, what would you all do? Well, he basically pleads with her and states his case, verse 9. And it says, there is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this evil and sin against God? Well, in verse 10, she just kept after Joseph. She was persistent. And as the story goes, she emptied out the room, made sure there was nobody around, and she went after him once more. And she caught a hold of his garment, and he fled. He got out of there fast. I remember growing up, my father used to talk to me about these things. And he said, son, sometimes you just have to run. And I suspect Joseph did the same thing. The Bible says he did. He ran. But she had the garment. Evidence. What did she do with it? Well, she lied. She made a lot of noise and hollered and screamed a little bit. And the guards came in, her servants and so on. And she began to tell them a made-up story about what Joseph had done to her. And when Potiphar came home, she did the same thing. She showed him Joseph's garment, and Potiphar becomes angry. Well, he should, if the story is true. What man wouldn't want to defend his wife in this case? And guess where Joseph ended up? He gets put into the king's jail. Now think about it. You're in Joseph's shoes. You've been thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, sold again into slavery, got a good job, and then again, you're in, now you're in prison. But God was with Joseph, and Joseph was soon put in charge of the jail. And all the prisoners as well he was put in charge of. So Joseph became responsible for the entire operation. Here his skills were that God had given him. But there's something bigger than that going on here, and we'll get to that in a while. As God works through this, he's working a, a plan through all of this. So the king had a cupbearer and he had a baker, which was very common for the kings in that particular time. You know what the cupbaker was for, to make sure that whatever the king was drinking, the king wasn't poisoned. So if the cupbearer had poison in it, he was going to die and not the king. So that was one of the cupbearer's responsibilities. But somehow he and the baker offended the king. And they were put into the same prison, just happened to go into the same prison that Joseph just happened to be in charge of. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. So he saw Joseph's skills again in the jail. Nothing was going to hold Joseph back. Then Joseph gets the opportunity to interpret dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. The sad part about this dream is one of them was going to die and the other one was going to live and be restored. And if you guessed it, the cupbearer 
would end up being restored to his former position with the king and the baker would be no more. In other words, he, his life ended. Joseph then asked before he left to go work back with the king, asked the cupbearer to please remember him to the king. But this cupbearer got busy, soon forgot about Joseph. Two years passed. Then Pharaoh had a dream and it needed to be interpreted again. Opportunity. He called in all of his wise men, which leaders, good leaders always had good advisors, and they surrounded themselves with the best people they could to help them in various aspects of running a kingdom like this particular, the Egyptian empire at this time, which I think was the largest empire known in the world at that time. Then the, cup bear, the, the king had a dream. He couldn't find anybody to help him interpret the dream. Couldn't figure it out. Nobody seemed to know how to interpret that dream. Well, the cupbearer happened to be overhearing the conversations and so on that were going on between the king and his servants. And he speaks to Pharaoh about his experiences with a man named Joseph, a Hebrew youth who ran the prison. So the king was anxious to find someone. He was getting very impatient. He knew there was an urgency to this dream and he had to find somebody to do it. Well, in chapter 41, verse 14, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, had to clean him up fast. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Opportunity again. Joseph then lets Pharaoh know that it was not Joseph who had the power, but that God would give Pharaoh the interpretation through Joseph. Joseph was a humble man, even among all these circumstances. Notice Joseph doesn't draw attention to himself. He gives God the credit for the dream interpretations. He always knew where they were coming from, and he gave God the credit for that. Could we do the same thing under the circumstances with everything that's happened? Tough, tough answer sometimes, unless we're really honest with ourselves and take a good self-inventory. We don't always know how we would react. But thus far, Joseph had not demonstrated any hostility at all in the scripture toward his family, toward his brothers especially, for his circumstances. The dreams, okay, basically revealed, and this is what was going to be the key to all of this, there was going to be seven years of great abundance in the land. And then there was going to be seven years of famine in the land. And eventually the great abundance will be forgotten once the severe famine takes hold. That's usually how people react. Because once you're in a famine and you're extremely hungry, that takes over. You go into the survival mode. When people have been without food for 10 to 12 days, they get to the point where they're almost ready to kill somebody to get food. And so it would be very easy to forget about the good times when you're out of food and you're just trying to... to, to to survive. Well, the dream was repeated twice to Pharaoh, which means that the matter was determined by God, as the scripture tells us. Now, here was the problem. Pharaoh needed a man, a man who would be discerning and wise, and he was going to set that person over the land, chapter 41, verse 33. So the plan was to store enough food in seven good years to feed the Egyptians for seven bad years, and they also fed a lot of people that weren't Egyptians at that time too. 
both Pharaoh and his servants approved the plan. They finally agreed on what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, and so on. But the next step was to appoint a leader that had the skills to accomplish this. So they had to find the right person. Genesis 41, verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Pharaoh was aware that there was divine action going on here. Verse 39, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. Joseph has opportunity here again, doesn't he? This is an exciting time for him. Joseph now has the one thing that man craves more than anything else in the secular world, and that's power. He has that power, and he has a lot of power. He's the second most powerful human perhaps in the world at that time. And to add to this pitched position, Pharaoh made sure that he was dressed accordingly to go with all that power. And so he was given, he was put in the special Egyptian garments, in verse 42, it says, Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. So he was dressing Joseph up very similar to the way the Pharaoh would be dressed because the way they dressed their leaders, they dressed them so that they would look like they were leaders and be somewhat intimidating so that people would easily bow down to them, pay homage to them, obey them, do whatever they were asked, because if you didn't in these kinds of cultures, they're liable to knock you out. So. Well, the question is, do you think he might have had some thoughts about getting back at his brothers with this kind of power? Wouldn't you and I have those kinds of thoughts? Somebody did what, what he went through in this. He now has the means to do it. And as we look at his life thus far, we can see the hand directing his path. If through all the bad things that happened to Joseph, God is now moving again towards something. In verse 55 and 57 of chapter 41. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. When the famine was spread over all the face on earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in all of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Well, you can imagine Pharaoh made a lot of money now selling all that food to everybody. So it increased his wealth and his coffers. And this, what a business move he made in picking Joseph, not realizing that God was the one that picked Joseph for this job. Now the scripture tells us that Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt. Now we're back to Jacob in his homeland. He finds out there's grain in Egypt. So Jacob sends ten brothers to buy grain from Egypt. Remember the ten brothers that put Joseph on a caravan, sent him off. He's sending Jacob back 
to Joseph back, his brothers back to Egypt. Jacob kept back, he kept back Benjamin. He wanted no harm to come to Benjamin. Benjamin was now his favorite because he thought Joseph was dead. He didn't know Joseph was alive. So the story goes, the ten brothers go to Egypt, and just like the dreams, they bowed down to Joseph with their faces to the ground when they came before Joseph. Now, at this point, they didn't know who he was. They, did, they only knew he was second in command. He was in charge here. They didn't recognize him at first. Joseph had recognized them, although they didn't. It had been many years since they'd seen Joseph, and keep in mind, Joseph was now dressed like an Egyptian. So to them, he was an Egyptian. When you look at the fine art from Egypt, if you've ever been over there and you've seen the, the mummies and so on that they've dug up over the many, many years, you can get a good picture of what Joseph now looked like. He had the gold breastplate on, usually a headpiece, usually the head was shaved. They even did things to their face. They wore jewelry. He had the signet ring on. And imagine when these guys came in and they saw him they were very, very intimidated. Now, we come to chapter 45, and a lot had taken place. Joseph had finally, through some maneuvering, had all the brothers before him in one room. And I want you to see Joseph's handling of his brothers and the mercy shown here. Could any of us do what is about to happen? This is my favorite scene in the story. You could make a great movie out of this. Chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried. And he says, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And you notice what he did next. First thing he wanted to know is if his father was still alive. Now they were probably still a little baffled by that time. They were probably wondering, how did he get here? We sold him to the Ishmaelites. We had thrown him in a pit. How in the world could that be our brother standing there? He didn't look like him. And how could he be there? How could he be? I, I can't imagine what was going through their mind. Then Joseph says to his brothers, he finally, finally wants to make it clear who he is, and he says, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You can imagine they might have been trembling by this time in fear of what Joseph could, about, could have done to them at this point. But he immediately consoles them. The scripture tells us, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. And here comes the key. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. And then he said to them, he said, God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household 
and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. God was preserving a remnant. What was the remnant for? It was for the Hebrew people. They were coming out of all of this. We were, they were going to be a very, very large nation, 12 tribes. But eventually, you knew they would end up in bondage for over 400 years. But God is working toward, out of this, out of the seeds of this, these people, is going to come the Messiah. The great forgiver, the great deliverer. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me, he said, but, but God. It's a wonderful story of forgiveness. Joseph had the power to do harm to his brothers. And yet he grants mercy to his family, even after the hateful things that had been done to them. As I read this story, I see here what we have is forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the canceling the debt that is owed as a result of sin. And I think every one of us have had people in our lives that we've had to forgive. Hopefully, you don't have anybody in your life that you still have to forgive. But forgiveness is the canceling the debt that is owed as a result of sin. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we forgive, we give up the right to hurt back the person that hurt us. Now, that doesn't seem fair, but remember, fair doesn't come around but once a year. It has Ferris wheels, cotton candy, and tilt-a-whirls. That's it. When we forgive, we give up the right to hurt, to hurt back at the person that's hurt us. Forgiveness is the first step toward reconciliation, however. And it's impossible to recognize, to, to reconcile without forgiveness. But it is possible to forgive without reconciliation. Sometimes reconciliation may not be possible. When we forgive, we give up the right for them to pay for their sin. And this is what Joseph did with his brothers. He made no conditions for them. He could have. He could have said, said, I'll forgive you if you do thus and such and thus and such. But he didn't do that. Forgiveness is the prerequisite for reconciliation. In other words, you and I have to forgive before we can be reconciled. Before that process ever starts. And if I haven't forgiven you and you seek reconciliation... I'll continue to breach by continuing to hurt you if I don't forgive you. One of its which is to withhold forgiveness. That's one of the ways we hurt the person that hurt us. We don't forgive them. Now, you may not want to reconcile with me if I hurt you in some way, but there's often fear of being hurt again, and we don't want to risk of any more hurts. Ideally, there'd be forgiveness and reconciliation, but the reality is that sin creates a breach of trust in the relationship, and trust is not easily healed, it's not easily repaired. We both know when a trust has been violated in your life, you hesitate to forgive because you don't want to be hurt again, you don't want to, so you're afraid if you forgive, they're going to do it again and again and again. And maybe you've been hurt a lot in your life, and so you have collected all of these bad experiences in your life, and you just don't want to turn loose of it. You just feel like you can't turn loose of it. The reality is sin creates that breach of trust. 
This may be recognized in the scripture that mandates for forgiveness. And we need to be serious. When I first read this scripture many, many years ago, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Matthew 16, verse, Matthew 6, excuse me, verse 15. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, what? Then your father will not forgive who? You. He will not forgive you, your transgressions. God is very, very serious about forgiveness, ladies and gentlemen. Both forgiveness and reconciliation are only made possible truly by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Often you and I estimate the severity of sinful acts, especially when we're the ones who sin against someone else. For us, it's not so severe because we're not the ones experiencing the consequences. It's the innocent that experienced the pain of sin. And that was Joseph. Might that be you? He was innocent, and yet Joseph ultimately gives up his right to inflict pain or make his brothers pay. And this is the principle behind turning the other cheek, and it's the foundational principle of grace itself. Grace involves giving kindness when the sinner deserves punishment. God sacrificed his son for our forgiveness and he paid the penalty that we deserved and now he doesn't hold us condemnable. We're free from the wrath of God. And because you and I are free from the wrath of God if we know Christ, we have the mechanism by which we can be restored to one another. Friends, Forgiveness is so important in our lives. It frees us from so many things. It opens the doors to many things and opens up our witness and our testimony to others as well. You remember the model prayer we all know that we find in, in Matthew that Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him, teach us to pray, and he taught them the model prayer. When I was growing up as a, as a young child, when I, when I lost my mother at a very young age, the first prayer my father taught me was the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer. If you had a Catholic background, you would have called it the Our Father. And uh, so the, I was taught that prayer, and I just memorized it as a five-year-old child. And I said it for many years. And then we moved to Florida and joined the Methodist Church, not too far from here, actually, in the other side of the county. And I noticed every, every Sunday the pastor had a time in the service where they had the pastoral prayer. And the pastoral prayer usually lasted five, ten minutes, a long prayer for a young child to listen to. But they always came to the same prayer. We always did the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name prayer. And you got to where you just said this prayer flippantly. It was just kind of a ritual that you did. And, and when every Sunday you checked off the box, got the prayer done, and now it's time for the sermon. And that's when he would usually preach after that. But it, there's a key phrase in there that is so key to this. It comes to this. This is where we have the hard time. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. That phrase is so tough, isn't it? We've been hurt. We've been harmed. Somebody has done bad to us. And we'll still say, Lord, forgive me of my trespasses. Forgive me of my sins as we forgive those who trespass against us, and it just goes right by us. Never knowing that those two phrases go together. One's dependent upon the other. You can't have one without the other in this particular phrase in the prayer. Remember, Jesus is our peace, and he reconciles us into a new person. And forgiveness is at the core of that. 
We cannot know Christ without Christ's forgiveness in our lives. And God demands of us the very, very same thing. If we don't forgive others their trespasses, God is not going to forgive us of our trespasses. This is difficult. It's very hard. Doesn't seem fair, as I mentioned before. But the cross pays for the sin. It pays for my sin that I've committed against you. And it pays for your sin that you've committed toward me. Therefore, if I want to be forgiven, I've got to forgive you. It isn't right for me to receive the blessing of forgiveness if I'm withholding it from you. And friends, how many times have we withheld forgiveness from somebody over the years in our lives because of the pain that he suffered, because of the loss perhaps we've suffered? We may have had financial loss. We may have lost a spouse. We may have had death come in and we get angry at God and blame God and can't forgive God. Well, those are the kind of things people experience when they have lost loved ones sometimes. So the Bible says forgiveness and reconciliation are dependent upon the price for sin being paid for by the death of Christ. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And Paul was preaching the gospel, which was the word of reconciliation. Paul was asked by Jesus to go and take the word to the Gentiles. And this is the message, the message of reconciliation he took to the Gentiles. When he came in, when he wrote to his churches, many of them had a lot of problems. He was always trying to reconcile them as well as what was going on in the church that was scripturally incorrect. And so he was helping them in that aspect. So Paul's ministry of preaching was a ministry of reconciliation. And I think we can safely conclude forgiveness is mandated in Scripture. Now, reconciliation involves a process of being persuaded. I don't believe Scripture teaches us anywhere that if there's no reconciliation, we cannot be reconciled to God. Instead, Scripture says in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So the responsibility for forgiveness rests upon the one who's been sinned against. In other words, if you have sinned against me, I have the responsibility to forgive you, listen to this, without conditions. Most of the time, it's not unusual to react. I will forgive them when they apologize, when they do thus and such. I'm not going to forgive them. They hurt me so bad, or he hurt me so bad, or she hurt me so bad, or that boss treated me so horribly. I'm not going to forgive him unless they apologize to me. No, it's without conditions. I can't make you repent. And I can't make you apologize as a condition under which I hold forgiveness. Joseph could have used force with the power he had to make his brothers say they're sorry. But would they have really been sorry if he would have used force? I doubt it. Forgiveness involves me not holding you condemnable. And therefore, I can't punish you because of it. I let you off the hook and I'm willing to bear the pain for your sin. You can accept it. Or you can reject it as well. Forgiveness is my decision and it must take place within me. The responsibility for forgiveness is on the one who's been sinned against. If you have been sinned against, if you'd sinned against me, I have the responsibility to forgive you without any conditions. I can't make you, you repent. I can't make you apologize for anything. I cannot make you do penance. 
and I can't make you pay. It's something that I can't do. I can, here's what I can do. I can, I can let go of the control that unforgiveness has on me. I can let go of that control. When we harbor anger and when we harbor hurt, sometimes the unforgiveness transfers to our bodies. And we get upset stomachs. And we get headaches. And we get other physical symptoms. I remember one time when I was a young deacon in another church. We were having quite a discussion on something that was very controversial in the church. And we young fellows were kind of sticking together. And there was an old deacon over there on the other side of the, uh, where we, we sat in a big circle. There was 20 some odd of us around. And the older deacon in there who'd been a deacon, it seemed like forever, and looked straight at me and he said, you got to get over this. You got to pray about this and get over this or you're going to be sick. And you know, I thought for, I didn't think much about it at that time, but over the years I watched what bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and resentment was. And I saw that old guy was right. He was right. It could make you sick. Bitterness sets in and we find ourselves also living examples of what a Christian is not. And you'll find that out very quickly. Your witness can be severely hindered and other relationships can be deeply affected. Unforgiveness in a home can really create a lot of tension in the house. And fathers and mothers need to forgive each other when you have your quarrels and you need to, need to settle them. Settle them biblically, humbly, and affectionately and move on to the next thing. Your children, if you have children, need to see that. When you really think about this, you must ask yourselves this. If I can ask God to forgive me, if I can ask him to forgive me, then why can I not do the same for other people? Why can't I? What did Jesus do when he was hanging on the cross and suffering an unimaginable suffering? Jesus not only suffered the physical pains of the cross, but he suffered the bearing of the sin on the cross. God poured out his wrath upon his son on our behalf. And he came to save his sheep, and he took what we deserved, placed it upon himself, and suffered and died to pay the penalty that was our penalty, that we were due. He was innocent. Joseph was innocent. And yet we struggle with turning loose past sins against us. There's a famous quote by a man by the name of Adi Bachman once said this regarding forgiveness. He said, I am redeemed and therefore I have the ability to forgive because I understand that your sin is ultimately against God and he's the one that you have to deal with, not me. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's so true. And John MacArthur said this. He said, forgiveness is required of a believer because forgiveness is the most godlike act a Christian can do. No act is more divine than forgiveness. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were Joseph, what would you do? Would you follow in his footstep and his example? If you, Jesus said to be, we were taught in the scripture to be imitators of Christ. Part of that imitation is to be a forgiver. To be a reconciler when reconciliation is possible. We are to be reconciled with Christ first and then reconciled with one another 
In the church, when we have controversies in the church, the goal is to reconcile in the church. Not split, not run, not escape, but face whatever it is within the framework of the church. I've seen more people leave churches because they've been offended by somebody in the church instead of reconciling and following Christ in that and going to that person. And follow. We have Matthew 18 to follow as our model when we, we offend one another, and we need to be utilizing that. Forgiveness is a major obstacle for people, and it is also for the people in the church, as I started out when I began talking about, when I began reading, doing this sermon. So never be more like God than when you forgive. That's so important. We're never more like him than when we forgive. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your message this morning, this, this evening. I thank you, Father, for your great mercy and grace in the lives of those who in this room know you. And I pray for those, Father, who may not yet know you, Lord, that you do a supernatural work in their hearts, that you draw them to you, and that you grant them eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, please grant your blessing upon this church in the days ahead. May we always be a beacon of hope for people, hope in Christ. May Christ always be the center of everything we do. May we, Lord, comfort one another, help each other, encourage one another, be gracious for one another, but be forgivers of one another as well. Help us, Lord, to not be people who hide because of offense, but a face offense just as you would have us do, and mature in the faith by being great healers through reconciliation, through forgiveness. In Jesus' precious name, amen.